Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast. This particular series of episodes is focusing on the long-term relationship between certain directors and their sound teams. I'm Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and I'm really thrilled to be sitting at a table on the Fox Studio lot today with Matt Reeves and his team that he's been working on for four pictures in a row, right? Cloverfield. Yeah, that's true, right? You've been Whoa. working on us for that long? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cloverfield, Let Me In, and of course, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Wow, that's crazy. And most recently, War for yeah, the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's the last one. This is the last one. That's yeah. It. yeah, it's over. Yeah, so that's it's, a, yeah. it's been fun. End of the line. Yeah. This was it. We gave him one last one, and we thought that was it. Each time they so, said no. Uh, at the table, joining Matt, we have sound designers, supervising sound editors, and re-recording mixers, Will Files and Douglas Murray. And making a special guest appearance to represent music at the table today, uh, I'm thrilled to have Michael Giacchino with us. Ah, all right. It's me. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk, I want to start about, to talk about War for the uh, for the Planet of the Apes, which is obviously the most recent film, but I want to touch on the other movies that you guys have, have done together as well through the conversation. I think, you know, watching the movie again, most people get so kind of just taken away by the, by the, the storytelling in War of the Planet of the Apes, I think it's easy to lose sight of how hard it was to make this movie. So I wanted to just Not sort of... <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, Matt, to sort of describe... I'm, I'm thinking especially of the opening sequences of the, the, of the film at, yeah. the, at the Apes camp and then you know behind the waterfall. So I'm curious about like, what's the process of shooting that? How, how, much, of that is, how much of that is real? Is, is any of it real? Um, obviously, you're using actors who are doing who are doing some uh, mocap. But yes. what's the process of uh, well? Um, it depends on the scene, but most of what we shoot is real. Most of what we shoot takes place um, on location. But there were sections of so at the beginning when we're in that uh, opening battle scene, we're moving up a hillside of a logging area in Vancouver, and the whole thing is shot. All of that is um, that's all photography and then the um, performances are captured right there with uh, the humans and the apes and then the um, we shoot plates that uh, don't have the apes in them and then Weta takes those performances and um, translates them so that the apes are doing what the actors were doing and then and that that, that process takes a year and it's crazy then when we got to the um, waterfall um, there's only a certain section of that we built so much of it doesn't exist. And one thing that didn't exist even in any of the iterations of the waterfall was the waterfall. So <laughs> all of that was created. Even even when we were shooting outside and you see them in this beautiful sort of um, almost like a quarry-like area, like very beautiful area, there was there was no um, waterfall there. There was a, a raging river because it had rained and actually one of our cranes almost washed away. We had to bring in a crane to take out our crane. So the shooting conditions were very challenging, but it was in certain ways, I guess, it's a lot more like conventional filmmaking that you would think, except for the fact that all of the sounds um, have to be made again afterwards because the they're not apes, but then we work really hard to keep what the actors do too because their sounds are very distinctive. And Andy sounds like Andy. And, and if you start putting, we've learned this when we did Dawn, if you start putting chimp noises in Andy's mouth, he's not Andy anymore, work. he's not Caesar. So, and, and so there's a whole process uh, through which each character's voice is arrived at that takes 
a long time. Well, I think that's a good, I think that's a good cue for for Douglas and Will to describe a little bit about how you're building those vocalizations and and the the sound treatments for the for the ape characters. Well, it, I'll take that one since that's kind of my primary Doug's area domain. of responsibility. <laughs> um, I would say that we learned a lot from doing these the previous film yeah. uh, together because I don't think any of us had any idea how to best do it. And I remember panicking at one point when Matt said, you know, I think we're going to need to replace all the human voices with ape sounds, ape sound effects from real apes. And it just that's which seemed... they mostly did, I think, in Rise, except for Caesar, and because it yeah. was because there was a community of apes, and then we kind of arrived at this thing where, through process of, I mean, yeah, it trial was, and error. It was it was a long period of trial and error. There were yeah. Doug was pulling his hair out because yeah. it was like, well, no, that's not it either. That's and not it. You know, it, it was very difficult because we figured we have to at least do something to their voices. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if they're not human, we have to process the voice. Sure. We have to EQ it. We have to f- add. Combine you know, it with like horse pitch sounds. shifting or breaths. And <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, because I, I presume, yeah. I, you know, they're from it, animals. It's very physical what the actors are doing yeah. when they're doing the mocap, and I presume they're doing some sort of vocalizations. So, how much of that can you actually use? So, in the first one, we thought we couldn't use it as much as we actually ended up using it. So, we used it a lot more than we thought we would. That's we, where we discovered that, the, that with Andy in, in particular, we had a thing where we we're like, there was a moment when he was crying out. Yeah. And Andy had done a thing, yeah. and we're like going, well, so we, but we need a chimp thing there, yeah, right? Be a and then we put a chimp thing, and we're going, that doesn't work at all. It's not And Andy. it was so interesting. Every time we put anything else in Andy's yeah. mouth, it didn't work. I think there was one thing or two things in the movie where you combine his we voice with something. We combined it for his call out when he's at the bear. But in this one, we didn't do it at all. Did we? I don't think. Not think for we, Andy, no. Yeah. Not, not yeah, We did it with some of the other. So every, tried everything maybe when he was running towards, towards the colonel at the waterfall? But oh, I when think, he, run, but, when but he ran think, out? Yeah. Well, we have ADR there, but we yeah. did put in a big scream yeah. uh, to, su- yeah. to, again, double his, what he did. Yes. But I don't and know Yeah, that actually his that. voice, it is layers that. of his voice yes, in that that's scene. What so it's not just his doing. scream, but there's, not, there's no chimp added that's into correct. his voice. Yeah. And in fact, somebody who was exceptionally good at it was Terry, who plays Rocket. Mm, yeah. In fact, he's so good at it that we would do, you know, Doug would do this thing where he'd go with his microphone and get... On the last movie, especially, he got um, our ape performers to walk and sniff around him as if you yeah. were like in the middle of these yeah. apes, and um, and some of those recordings you even I mean we you, used you got new ones but for you used, sure yeah you and we used yeah. we used those recordings again but yeah. we made a lot of new a ones a lot too. new ones yeah and yeah, then Karen was the hard one I mean Karen mm-hmm. who plays um, yes. Maurice because where Terry and um, and uh, and and Terry, I'm sorry, well, Terry and Terry, and also Terry. No, and when Andy. Terry and uh, and and Andy have a kind of vocalization that makes sense for who they're playing, Karen, who's a genius. I mean, she's she's playing an orangutan. She's she's a woman though, and she's not an orangutan. And what is that? And they, and actually, orangutans make very exotic, really interesting yeah. sounds. They're pantoots. They're called. Is that correct? <laughs> um, is that one of the things? Well, the long pantaloons. Is the most distinctive sound, which call. is very <laughs> undescriptive. Yeah, which we always call the oogadoo. Right? The oogadoo. <laughs> but so, what was interesting was we tried to keep as much of her as possible as well. So there, you really did some careful blending, where there were yeah. there were sometimes where you used the rhythm of what she had done and replaced everything, and then it was animated. But then we started seeing that when the animation came in and it was the actor 
um, their voice was what was animated to. There was a certain kind of alchemy that made it seem very real. So it was like, wow, let's not replace that. Let's supplement it or let's blend it. Oh, I hadn't thought or, about that because, of course, the animation is The animation is to, done to what the actors do. Yeah, you know, which, and, is, which is, And they follow the lip based on and the, everything. Based on the voice. Yeah. So, so, if, really so if Karen's going like, if, if Karen's going, She's doing her lips exactly yeah. in a certain way, yeah. and then when it's animated, you look at it and you go like, yeah, that looks like that orangutan is talking like Karen. So there's so, a lot of, you know, when you're going for authenticity, there are a lot of different things. Like, it's not only the sound timbre or whatever. It's also the sync, and it's the emotional performance, and it's the continuation of the same voice quality from... You know, when she so he seems like, so that the characters so seem like one character. I mean, there's an interesting thing. That's why it didn't work with Andy. It was like it was as if suddenly he was another character. Right. And and that would happen with Karen too. Yeah. But Karen couldn't all be Karen. It's kind of and like, so that was yeah. a real challenge that I think Doug really came up with. You know, it was a lot of trial and error. And I think on this one, you learned a lot from the last one because that was. I remember when you started, you found those long calls or whatever. Yeah, they're in, so great. And when they came in, it was like I was like going, "Ooh, Maurice just came to life." But on this one, it evolved further because we ended up using well, more of her than I think we did you know, in the last one. Too. I think yeah. she, well, she spoke too. She actually, I think the the sound work that we did on the second film, I think she realized there was more palette there yes. than what she had done on the set of the second oh, film. Oh, that's interesting. So what so, she saw the first yeah, film, yeah. she was like, She was oh, actually imitating the long yeah. She saw Dawn and yeah. heard her voice com- very much altered compared to what we did in the in the in war. And so in Dawn, she was quite surprised, I think, when she saw it. And she realized that we had expanded her range quite a lot from what her performance had been. And so uh, she learned how to do those sounds. And and she expanded really well. her range. And not only that, but she, of, I uh, mean, exactly. Karen spends a lot of time with orangutans. Like she, she, oh, really? she, she started a relationship with orangutans just hanging out with them on Rise to learn how to be an orangutan. She was like, how am I going to play an orangutan? So there was this um, one orangutan who's since died um, named Tawan, who was for her the model of Maurice. And she would paint with him. So there were all these things that were very behavioral. And she could pick out the different behavioral things that each different orangutan would do. And sometimes Doug would put something in and she'd go, that's not my character. That's (laughs) not what I would do. And in fact, there was a thing where Doug had put together a really nice sort of um, layout of stuff that was mixture of her and some other ape sounds and then even some sounds that weren't ape and she would listen to it and she was like going oh no 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 please please don't do that <laughs> and so um, it's true uh, and so then there so was, when was she hearing this was this during well because you know during, the thing was about this during, these, was this during yeah, ADR session or, you do or? very the process of making this movie is you get like six here's the thing the hard part is that you shoot it and it's very unforgiving, the process of shooting, because you shoot the actor, and then the actor's gone, and the camera move has to be gotten again, and then you have to get all these references. So every shot, on another movie where you get the shot, and you're like, great, we have the shot, now you have to do it like three more times before you can move on. And so the shooting day is really tough. But what is great about performance capture is that you get many bites at the apple. Like when you're doing... Um, like ADR on a movie, that might be the only way to change a line. Here, you could literally have the actor come in, put on the face cam, and we could change the line or a performance. And so there were lots of things that we were evolving where as we would be in post, we'd discover different moments or there'd be a thing that we would change. And so Karen would get these little windows into where we were so far. And there was a thing, it was fairly well, early Well, you were on. doing a pickup shoot in Manhattan Beach. Yes, we were doing and a volume pickup I shoot. I sat with her at lunch and I yes. played her... 
Uh, we had a, I just wanted to talk to her because I wanted to get her insights nice work. into the whole thing. <laughs> she was very upset. I was like, Jeff, what did so you do? Then I played her the thing, which was a work in progress. And she, it did. It was upsetting for her because I didn't just use her voice. Well, and I'll tell you what was very interesting, too, is she speaks at the end, right? I mean, she speaks earlier, but she speaks at the end. And the, and, and the interesting thing is we really wrestled with that because... Mm. Her performance was emotional and it was really good, but it didn't have the resonance that you would imagine this big orangutan, orangutan to have. have right, yeah. And that one, we just struggled, but we ended so up keeping many, her voice. Yeah, you yeah. altered her voice, but it was like the question of how far is too far? Because if he altered it too much, if it started getting too low, we started losing quality in the voice that was actually creating the emotion. So then we're going, okay, so this is now more resonant, but weirdly, it's not sounding like an emotional performance and she was incredibly emotional in that final scene so that process was like i'd say like how many semitones is yeah. that well, that's one semitone well we don't okay okay that's good that was, that's that was, three that was one semitone too far yeah, yeah. seriously then that's that's literally how we did it, it on the stage yeah. then it starts to sound like every Queen from, yeah. yeah right yeah. exactly and we we kind of came up with a novel thing kind of in the last couple of days of the mix yeah, really which true. was we realized that what was really missing from her from when he was speaking, when Maurice was speaking, because huge chest cavity on those right. animals, you know? Sure. Mm -hmm. And we realized there wasn't that resonance to the voice. So we actually played the oh, this voice was really cool, what you did, through yeah. a drum. Through a big wood drum. Interesting. And we, so you're we resonated it. We worldized it through her voice. with a membrane, a, you know, a, a big leather membrane. That so, so it was still her voice. And in some cases, it wasn't even lower to semitone. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was just not. adding the resonance seemed to give her a little bit more yeah. heft. To so make what did you actually do? Did you you put a you put a speaker inside a drum and then re-recorded that from the Did outside? you do that or didn't you have like a magic? We thing? had a sample of it. You had a We thing used though. a sample uh, and used convolution. A, I would like I think a, it would have like been cooler thing. if you'd yeah. actually yeah. done it inside a drum. I know. Yeah, that yeah, to yeah, me is would have been a lot cooler if we would have had like three more days instead of two more days. The movie But you had a plug in that did it, right? Wasn't that what it was? Well, we did. But, it, but it did it's kind called of, a convolution. Uh, it was reverb, really cool. And it uses a being in a drum, a drum would have been cooler. It would have been a lot cooler. We used Next to time. On might not have sounded different to but. create the sound through the wall, the voices. Uh, but those I recorded myself. Oh, and yes. let me in. That yeah. you actually yeah, did. Yeah. Let world eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, what was that again? Doug actually recorded his no, himself I stomping around. I made my own <laughs> recordings of the sound through a wall, and then I recorded, and then I played. The voice through that. My favorite thing that you did though, so early on in the editing of when we were just starting to put together Let Me In, there's a scene where the character who plays the father has been in, in this horrible accident where right. he's poured acid on himself and then he's almost <clears throat> died and the car went off the road and he's in the hospital. And so I was like, I think the most important thing here, we like wrote it in the script, was like, just gonna be the sound of what that respirator sounds like. So he came in as we we're editing with like the eeriest, creepiest, like <laughs> I was like, what is that? He goes, I got a two piece of tubing. And I, I was like, what did you do? And he Doug created, knows. so it's all Doug. <laughs> Doug made these crazy, really eerie, distinctive, amazing sounds, which are in the movie. But anyway. And that was also a really good imitation of Doug. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't go on here. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I'm going to come back to Let Me In because there's yeah. a lot of that really was a great, digression. There was a lot of really great sound stuff in there, but I, I'm I'm uh, Michael Giacchino sitting here so patiently. Uh, I'm just having fun listening, <laughs> listening to them lie through their teeth again. None of this again. happened. This is all. <laughs> well, so I would I would I would love to. Uh, You're going to pay would, for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
We'll cut that out. Um, <laughs> Don't. It's, yeah. This is it's, it's real, real life. It's real it's life. life. Do you want some I'm Albert Brooks? While you're uh, while, while, while yeah, could you while, fill this up? <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you. I'm curious to hear about the collaboration process between sound and music um, on on the Apes films. So, and what, do it you basically do- was he writes music and they go, "Please, can we have no music here?" And then he goes, "Wait, you're gonna put sound over my music?" No, I'm kidding. That's, that is not what happens. That's not a joke. I mean, you laugh, but that's the way it normally works on a movie, right? <laughs> no, that's that's actually yeah. usually the opposite with yeah. Michael. I mean, yeah, I, I gotta uh, say, of all the composers I've worked with, on every movie we've done together, he, he always says, "Hey, what if we take this cue out? Hey, yeah. what if we took that cue that's out? Hey, what true. if we take the beginning of this?" Cue out. That's definitely true. And yeah. um, it's a, always a fun process. To, to, to Too try. much music no. is no good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes he says no. Sometimes, but I'm but always like, lose that cue list. Because sometimes too much music. No, you, not you always, lose. though. I don't know. I said sometimes. But it, did, it did happen on Let sometimes. Me In, though, a couple times, right? You're like going, take that out. And you're like, no. And I'm like, take out the music because it, it, it will feel more real and it will be more important when music does come in. Right. I don't like you know? Well, you managed to talk yourself completely out of Cloverfield, right? There's yeah, well, really apparently just... from the beginning, that wasn't even a choice. I, I went into this thing so excited, <laughs> making a monster movie, finally, because I am so obsessed with, like, you know, Ultraman and Godzilla and all of that stuff. I love it. So I was so excited, and they're like, yeah, well, here's the bad news. It's a found footage film, and there's no score. And I was like, son of a... And I was like, so I went over to JJ. I was like, you can't... You can't do this without me, so what do you say we do this? I said, how about, how about this? I write the score that would have been in the film and you use it in the end credits. What do you say? <laughs> come on, come on. I was like, come on. And he was like, and was okay. Great. And that's what we did, yeah. I that love was, that piece you know, of music. I still... Because that's when you and I just first met. We had just met, we yeah. We just met. And okay. I remember when you, I mean, that piece of music, I just, I, to this day, when we did the thing over in um, London, London and yeah. they played it at the Royal Albert Hall, I would, just hearing that just brings me, I just, I just, my wife and I sing that. We literally were just dating. We, we actually met just before Cloverfield and then we moved in together during Cloverfield and I remember playing her your music and we listened to it obsessively we just loved it and she was very she loved it and she was very moved by it it was so fun to do it was so fun well it was also it's always fun when you can just write music in a vacuum well also yeah, you didn't have to do it to picture yeah it was you just do whatever good, right? you want i'm like it's, great here's the overture for this movie it's, yes. ep- it's got this epic and slightly japanese feel yeah. to it mm-hmm. like a godzilla-esque yes exactly. thing. yeah and it's the voice wonderful. that sings oh, and oh it's yeah. great it was insane. Oh, so. so good. Yeah, so no music in that movie. <laughs> well, not true. E- Actually, here's job, the great thing. Easiest job <laughs> But ever this had. is what was genius about it, mm-hmm. is that the movie, okay, so the one thing about making that movie was that it was crazy. We had, we had there was just, we were moving so fast, and there was only so much you could do to get, like, what we had to do in the amount of time we had to shoot it. So it was the shortest movie in history, and we actually needed, in order for it to be considered right. a feature film, he had to write a 12-minute overture yeah. for the ending. Yeah. So that's why there's this great epic thing at the end is you get, you say, hey, guess what? You got 12 minutes. Here you go. It's yours. So Michael, the technically. Is, the credit sequence on that film is 12 minutes yes. long. Yes. Yeah, Don't long. tell Showtime. And it goes nice and ones slow. Have yeah. That's you should see how slow they move. Read, like in any each, other movie, you you've got like 1,600 like people side by side. Going, whip, whip. This is like, here's, there is one in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you call the music that comes at the end of a piece of an artistic work. The posture? I suppose the it's underture. Just, you know, the, yeah. The, that's what the Who called it. Underture? Yeah. Oh, the, the underture. Over, there under, I guess that, that makes sense. <laughs> I like that. I'll go with that. The underture. Yeah. It's official. I'll go with it. Done. Sold. Really? Yeah. 
I'm, no, you don't like I it? I don't buy it. I don't like it either. You know what? I don't like it either. No. It doesn't <laughs> quite have the same... Well, so Clover, Cloverfield was the first film that you guys all worked on. And you that was the first film that Douglas, Hugh, and Will worked on I think together, we had worked on it? a James Gray You did? No, no, you we did it. Did you? I don't think so. Yeah, Will did a little bit of work on... Oh, is that true? Uh, I had worked with Will in, in a much less uh, involved way. Because before. I heard about you through James. Yeah. And then w- here's what happened. We were actually, here's the thing. We didn't know what we were doing on Cloverfield, literally. So we had, there was no script. There was, uh, we didn't know how to make it. They told me that it would have to be done on, on Steadicam and shake added later. And I was like, no way. What? No way, no way. They just literally, the VFX that kind people of were like, I don't think this is going to be done. Impossible. And I was like, what? They told you that for VFX. Yeah. And uh-huh. I was like, I don't, we, this is a disaster. So here's the crazy thing. While, so Drew and I, we beat out the script. And then while he took, uh, he took, I think, like seven weeks to go write the script. During that time, we prepped a trailer. We made a trailer before we had a screenplay <laughs> and before we even knew if we could make this movie. And part of that thing was we were making it because we knew that there was going to be a slot to take this totally unknown movie and put it on the release of Transformers. So we'd have this incredible spot. For your and trailer. So, yeah, so the trailer was more important at this point than the movie. And we were like, well, we need sound designers for the trailer. So we literally, it wasn't that these guys were hired for the movie. They came on because we were doing a trailer. And the trailer, of course, that experience was so great. That was actually how it happened. We went to Skywalker and they're going, well, we suggest that these guys come together. And we're like, great. Which was, by the way, this guy was probably the guy who said that. that Yeah, yeah. Well, so I remember very clearly, I was running Skywalker Sound at the time. I remember very clearly getting the call. The first call about Cloverfield came from Marty Cohen. Yes. Who was running post-production for Paramount. And also running in the film, away from a falling building. Exactly. (laughs) Hefty guy, I think he's listed as in the credits. Or husky guy. Husky. I I don't think we said hefty. I I I doubt that. Sorry, sorry, Marty, if you're listening to this now. So Marty Cohen, who ran post-production for Paramount, called me up and he said, he said, pal, I got a movie for you. Um, you know, I got twelve dollars. Yeah, and he was like, he was like, <laughs> but, but in this case, but, it was true. But yeah, the, it really was. The pro- but the problem is, it's really it's cheap. Actually, eleven ninety nine. Yeah. he says the problem is it's really cheap. But there's no music in the movie, so it's going to be a powerhouse for sound design. And he said, like, it's a monster movie, but we never see the monster, so it's all about the sound. And I was like, well, all right, so that's an interesting challenge. And I was like, I know exactly who to. Th- but and then when he said that there was twelve dollars, I was like, I need to find somebody <laughs> young who will cheat for no money. Call <laughs> Will. <laughs> will Files is going to take this on. <laughs> that was so fun too. Anyway, not that you want to digress into that, but that was, I mean, I remember that experience of trying to basically score the movie with sound. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was, was crazy. Cool. Well, yeah, because you had the rule, it was found footage. So of course, to have a symphonic score in the middle of that would have been completely And yet you needed the tension that that score would provide. And so there was all of these sort of like uh, ascending tones and yeah. these kind of drones and like the whole idea of everything that happens in the in the scene in the parasites where the parasites are attacking them in, in the, the tunnels in the those sounds tunnels. in the tunnel like we weren't even in the we were in like some place in like San Pedro it wasn't even a tunnel <laughs> so it was like everything was about sound everything and it was kind of like just getting the sound and going until you were going nuts <laughs> and then the audience going like I don't like this movie <laughs> Well, so there, there's, I mean, if you if you start to pull it apart, there's a really interesting kind of, you know, rule based thing, which is, you know, you shot it to make it look like it it was found footage. Yes. But it's five point one full fidelity high quality stereo sound. You had the, you had the idea of using the MS 
undecoded yeah. mic so that it was as if we had the mic that was on the camera. Right. I remember that um, Andy Nelson was like, this is great, don't ever do it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an amazing thing because it was like the whole idea was to take the voices and have we them had cycle to, around you every, the way it would sound like every on sound a cheap Every sound in the movie had thing. to be panned, including yeah. all the voices of all the characters and the Foley. And, yeah. You know, it had to track what was happening on the screen yeah. all the time. It was, it was bizarre. It was very complicated. It was cool. And it would have been a great movie for Dolby Atmos, actually. But it would have been. At the time, 5.1 was all we got. Sure. So we had to make it work. It's I mean, true. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, it's got to be mono. That's the only way it'll ever feel authentic. It's got to be mono. And then I, I mean, realized there's no way emotionally it's ever going to work well, in mono. what we did, though. Do they, the, do the they thing, have the cameras with did. Dolby Atmos microphones yeah, on them? We actually do. We actually do. Is yes. that true? Now, now there are now phones with Dolby Atmos no capture on them. Are you yes, kidding? So, so now you can, right, so the so next you movie can have fantastic wow. sound. That's the new Cloverfield, the new Cloverfield 7. Yes. Um, but the thing that we did do was that we did the same thing with sound that we did visually, which was... We couldn't actually shoot because the resolution, which by the way, now probably you could get something where the resolution was good enough on something really small. But when we were shooting Cloverfield, not only did we think we had to do it like on Steadicams, which thank goodness we didn't, because I thought, well, no one will ever buy that. These people are filming their lives and they're gonna look at these things, this movie and go like, well, that wasn't the way it really looks. And so what we did was we made a mix of, we started with a camera that literally fit in the palm of your hand. And so the idea was, then we went to another size camera, which I filmed much of it off. So I, I filmed a lot of that. I was HUD in those with him standing behind me. Or he, it, you know, TJ added a lot of great stuff later. Where it was like when he he's, he was yeah. his vocal performance is hilarious. He's great. Yeah. But each of those things, we just kind of graduated to bigger and bigger cameras. So you already accepted that like the the actors had been able to hand each other the cameras or it had fallen on the ground. Hmm. And then later, what happened is we went through several camera operators because they would put these handles on the camera and try to take like an eighty pound camera and lift it and swing it around as if it you know, weighed a pound. And they literally, we had, like, you know, two of them blew out their knees. It was crazy. It was absolutely brutal. But anyway, the sound at the beginning was kind of really lo-fi. Yeah, right. And it starts lo-fi and it starts widening and widening and then. Well, because I was thinking about it because I watched it again and you're right, you're, that, that very first sequence, which is just the two of them in the apartment, it really does sound like it's the onboard yeah, microphone. Yeah, that's the on, idea. Remember, but then, in fact, it was the onboard microphone. Yeah. But then the next scene, you're on the street and suddenly it's yeah, in five point. Right. Well, you know, right, yeah, exactly. So. We actually did, you know, normally on a film, we'd do like a Foley cloth pass, you know, to fill in all the ADR and everything. And that movie, our assistant, Josh Gold, actually sat and watched the movie with a camera handling He did a camera handling pass right. on the whole movie. Of course. <laughs> and so those sounds were great. Like oh, when yeah. the camera would suddenly drop, but you had this kind of like yeah. that little sound. It was crucial to selling the whole idea of like yeah. we had this big full fidelity ripping five one soundtrack, but if you had enough schmutz on it, you kind of believed <laughs> that it was a crappy little microphone. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, talk to me about the sound design of the of the creature on that film, because that was uh, well. Again, you know, same as the whole trailer thing. I mean, we kind of all figured out how to make the movie by making the trailer. In a lot so of ways. I, I I forgotten what the. Tell me, describe to me a little parasite, bit about what the though, I just want to say. One, <laughs> true. Well, I was part of the That was actually the main one sound. Night, it, one yeah. night I went around and, <laughs> 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 and they And they had this little Zoom H2 recorder. And uh, they were sitting and we were in this, we, actually one night we mixed at the Paramount, the, this, this room in Paramount that was so old that literally as we were doing a temp mix in there, the, the handle came off of the door from the inside and it was like one of these things that was like a vault. And it was like two we, in the morning. It was like two in the morning and it was like, we're going to die in here. We're not going to get out. But in one of those rooms, Will was sitting there and I said, well, you know, it doesn't have, I said, you've got all these great kind of sounds, but it needs kind of like a And you're like, oh, come run around Just me. Just record it. Just run yeah. around me right now. And so I ran around his little quad. 
microphonic recorder. Great <laughs> and that's what makes it cool is, I mean, obviously Matt's crazy sound, but the fact that it was running by the the microphone, yeah, you know, <laughs> like gave it that weird, like it's right in your face kind of sound, which actually made it really terrifying. It was or cool. weird. Or weird. But you know, the, the main monster Amazing. was, I mean, that was a process that lasted, you know, basically the entire the time, time we were in post. Yeah. But trying, was, trying to find it, you mean? Yeah, it was, it started out as on the, on the, the trailer, it was Doug and I both kind of just stabbing in the dark, making sounds and sending them to Matt and JJ and Brian Burke. And they would listen on their iPhones or whatever and send us back like, okay, I like 13, 29, and three. <laughs> That's you know? exactly what it was. That's yeah. right. And so then we'd iterate off of that. We'd iterate off of that. And it was all kind of sort of, you know, stabbing in the dark. But then we'd find elements that started working. And there was, I did some recordings of my own voice and pitched them down to have kind of a, you know, weird uh-huh. kind of thing. And if you pitch that down and it sort of made it sound, you know, it just gave it character. It made, right. made it sound like a real thing and not just a stupid beast. Well, because the challenge with that sort of thing is how many monster, you know, yeah. movies have we seen? And you have to find something that is unique and distinct. Well, Matt gave us a great note early on, which was that it shouldn't sound angry and just like, you know, a stupid dumb monster that actually what it is was scared. Yeah, my idea was that it was a baby mm. and that it didn't, it was suffering from separation anxiety because it didn't know where its mother was. And so it was basically, it just gotten here and was going like, where's mommy? <laughs> and that's what the sounds were all driven by that idea. Which was a huge, you know, help for us in terms of making the sounds because it gives you an emotion, something emotional to hang the whole thing on. Right. Right. And, and I think what we found was that the sounds of it being scared were much more scary than it just going rawr, you know? Well, because something that's scared is actually more scary because you don't know what it's going to do, yeah. right? Yeah. If it's there's a giant thing that's like seems spooked, like when animals get kind of a little spooked and angry, you're kind of like, oh, what? That's it seems when dangerous. That's you when they're really dangerous. Yeah, you don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And so we did, we ended up using, you know, all, all kinds of animal sources in my, in my own voice and Doug's voice to to create the sounds of that thing, you know, horses and that kind of stuff. But the real crucial piece of it was that I recorded a bunch of double bass, detuned double bass stuff mm-hmm. because it was just sort of thinking about the original Godzilla and how they created that sound and that was a basically a glove on a on a bass or a yeah. cello or something, yeah. right? And wasn't was there something with the, the, the gate to opening, the metal gate that's creaking yeah. up a gate that was also mixed in as well? Yeah. Every time I hear a gate that does this, I'm like Yeah. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's one of those things that just if you get the right thing out of it, because it has that resonant chamber on the instrument and if you hit the right note and you bend it the right way and you get this this horrible thing out of it, that's still evocative of like it feels like an animal almost, you Mm. know, those are great sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of I would say that was the the main component score. Right, it was a score. I just didn't write it. <laughs> well, you did. You wrote. You wrote the the the, the underture. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Don't try to make me feel better. Well, it's true. No. Well, so then we, but we go from that to uh, let me in, which has a lot of music. You, you go from. You go from. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like the last one. I thought, oh, this would be a piece of cake. <laughs> sure, just call me. You didn't want to do it. Call, let's be honest. I didn't want to do the movie. Gosh, you didn't want to do let me in. No, he no. had to make me do the movie. No, wait Why? a minute, that doesn't sound good either. <laughs> <laughs> what was your what, anyway, what was your re- what was your reluctance sorry. to do? Like, 
What was your reluctance to do? Let my me know. he well because I the, he was explaining what the subject matter was and it sounded incredibly violent and incredibly dark. I think I sent you the script. Yes, and I remember being in. Uh, yeah, you, was I was in uh, Albuquerque so and driving on one of those roads that goes on forever, where everything's kind of flat with monuments all around. And I was talking to you, and I could tell there was like. Because the script, you know, had it's things in it that disgusting. Yeah, and yes. I was, and I was like, oh, I don't know if he's gonna do it. I remember telling no, Melinda, I going, like, I don't know I if don't, he's gonna do it. I don't. I love horror movies. I love scary movies, but I don't like bloody movies. I don't like that. So the script was filled with that kind of imagery. Yeah, and and it was really graphic. And I just kept thinking. I don't want to look at that every day. By the way, when we were doing I, I, the movie, Michael looked away from the screen constantly. Yeah, as you scrolling the movie. I was like, those... Michael, that's not real. It's just, it's like caramel yes, syrup. But with the sound and everything, <laughs> it's just like, it really, it just got to me. So in the very beginning, I was kind of like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do it. And he kept making me, I remember how many times you had to call me, just come over and watch it. Just get over here and watch the movie with me. Because so, the movie's not that I mean, we've well, certainly seen a lot of I didn't know that at the time. I didn't he know, didn't know that. what it was going to be. And then he sat down and he watched the movie. And then he said, Yeah, it was you and Stan in that yeah, little edit exactly right. editing room. We were and, in the valley yep. and you came by and it was like. And like, I loved it. I watched it and I was like, Oh. I was like, oh. I was like It's about those kids. I was like, This is a really emotional story. And it was really sad. And I was like, And anything that's sad, I can. I can get my teeth into, you know, real easily for whatever reason. But I loved it. And after that, I was like, okay, okay, now let's go. You know, and then we were off to the races. Yeah. But yeah, the, it was a little rough in the beginning. Because in the beginning, you know, I think you yeah. thought we were doing a straight, straight ahead horror movie. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about when I work with Matt. What the, the most fun part of it is, you know, creatively, is being able to do music that is building and tension and slow and you just keep going you know what i mean because i love that kind of music but so rarely do that's you my ever... favorite kind of thing too and yeah. by the way people you're right because people are going is it really going to be that you're going to make it it's that really long just going to be some guy like, hitting a thing for 80 beats but that's my favorite it. thing and you be... did this on dawn too but i remember one of my like i love so much of the music and i was really moved by the music and let me in but there was one piece of the theme in particular which was the music for the suspense scene when the when the policeman when Elias Coteus has has reason to believe that there might be the killer inside where the two kids are and you did this music just go boom dong 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 and it's playing on timpanis right yeah and yeah. I, it just goes on and on and on and to me it was the greatest thing of all time because i was just, like this is you're so being forced into a corner by the music yeah. as a, as a participant, you know, you're just it. like, and it just makes you feel so, and it gets you on edge, and it gets you, you're just like, what is going on? And I think anyone watching the movie, even if they're not conscious of the music, yeah. it's still, right. it's like something that is about to pounce on them. Yeah, it had great menace. Ugh. And then you did something like that in Dawn, which I loved, which was, you're like, I have this idea that when Koba, when they have the fight at the end, there's this one thing which I call the cashmere scene, it's like, da-da-dun. Dun, dun, dun. It's like that, but it it goes on forever, and I love it. It's just going to, until you're like going, I think I'm gonna go crazy, and then finally they're fighting and it's crazy. Right, and but it, it like goes into this it whole takes other. for it's just I love that kind of thing. When yeah, you, when you so do that, sort so. of experimental music in a way. We we do a lot of that in these films, which mm. I 
I love it. I, you I, feel, I feel like I hear more of that in your scores with Matt's movies than almost any other things that you're doing. I And it's true. It's because he loves it as much as I love it. Right. And so when we're together, we get to just do that. Because I'm and, a boring director. That, <laughs> no. So I, I make things last forever. No, it's so <laughs> like, well, I got an idea. We can fill this with this. Yeah. Thank God you're going to need something. Well, but it's funny that you say that because that kind of, that kind of shooting and editing style gives these guys such a playground. Absolutely. There's and more, it's built into the movie. Like you couldn't do that on a lot of the other movies no. that I've work on because everything They're is fast, so fast. Right? They go boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. And next, before you know it, you're on to another scene. So you don't get the time to build that But there's, there's a great sense of that sort of uh, Bernard Herrmann or Penderecki oh God, yeah. and yes. Ligeti. Yeah, and it's all, all of that wonderful... mashed together in that mixing bowl. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. Well, I remember on Let Me In, you guys were doing so many weird effects with the, with the instruments. Yes. And I, I mean, I was the kind of thing I was listening to it and I would ask you or Andre and I was like, how how did you do that? Yeah. Like, what is that sound I'm what hearing? What are they doing to their instruments? Right. Yes, totally. exactly. Well, it's some, and sometimes the players, and a lot of time, you have to remember these players, These they're playing an instrument that is maybe worth $500,000. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes- Can you hit that? Sometimes a million dollars. And you're like, oh, just turn your bow over and smack it. And they're just like, no. <laughs> and they usually will bring their, their a second violin. They pull that one out. I'll hit this one. I'm like, okay. Especially yeah, when, they, when they get the call and say, oh, it's a Giacchino thing. Yeah, it was like, you better, better bring the crappy violin. <laughs> He's gonna have me screw something into it. Well, we did a lot of I that know, too. I know, that's why I'm saying it. I mean, yeah. you, you should have saw the piano on both Apes movies was littered with all different kinds of screws. And they, it's, it's called a prepared piano. And you go in and you prepare it. and. Jerry did it on the original uh, Planet of the Apes, Jerry Goldsmith. And uh, so I wanted to try that idea, so going in, but it's really, you're hunting for the sounds that you like, because sometimes you you do it and you're like, that's just, that's not it, you know? And, and it's all about how tight do I do the screw? How far away is it from the soundboard? It's all that, it's like a really crazy meticulous thing. And once you got it, I remember we photographed everything on it to make sure every screw was taken out and put in a little case. And we had it all again for, for So you could war. bring it back. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't even know where that is right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> Now that I think is of it, it in this bowl? Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe. <laughs> you brought you brought the you brought these props. What are the, what are what are these things that you brought to? Uh... Okay, so these are instruments that were used on the original Planet of the Apes, 1968 Planet of the Apes film. Um, there's a percussionist I work with. His name is Emil Richards, and he uh, he played the bongos on the very you know on the original Mission Impossible theme. He's played on <laughs> pretty much everything you've heard ever in your life. He's played on it, you know, and he's. Uh, still plays for me in my orchestra. So he's played on every Lost, every Alias. Every, I mean, the guy has been on everything. So when we when he found that I was doing Apes, he was like, hey, Goomba, he calls me Goomba. You know, he's, <laughs> my family's from Sicily, he's from Sicily. So uh, it's a whole thing. But, and and you you know, remember, you know the scene in Raiders where, where the student is leaving the classroom and he puts the, puts apple, the apple down the thing? Uh-huh. Emil always does the same thing, except with a, it's with a giant sausage. <laughs> He'll walk past me in the booth and just slam a sausage on the thing and just walk out. That was it. That's very you know? funny. Anyway, so he goes, I have something for you. And, uh, and you, you, know, you want to be a little worried about that when you hear that from a Sicilian. <laughs> so for those of you who are just listening on uh, the podcast, uh, Michael has what looks like a normal mixing bowl. It's a mixing bowl. Now, the story behind this particular mixing bowl was Emil in 19, probably 67, was wandering through a hardware store. He turned to grab something and he knocked over a stack of mixing bowls. <laughs> this is true. And he was just like, 
he heard the sound and like any great percussionist, if something resonates with them, they'll grab it, they'll buy it and throw it in their garage and think that they'll use it sometime. You know, so when he heard these, he was about to start doing Apes with Jerry and he thought these would be amazing for that film. And, and, uh, and he's sitting in the hardware store banging on these pots. I can only imagine the guys at the front being like, what the hell? So here's this, you know, you have this, You know, and there's about seven of these bowls and they're all different sizes. They stack inside each other. But that one, when you hear this one, I was like, bam, I was just taken straight back to this, you know, 1968 Planet of the Apes. And uh, and I was like, we can use these. He goes, no, 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 no. You can have them. And I was like, I can have these. Are you kidding me? Because I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes as a kid. I mean, I wanted to be Cornelius. I wanted to, you know, it was. And it's it's an iconic score. Absolutely. And I love Jerry Goldsmith and he was incredible. So he gave me that and he goes, I got another thing for you. And this also on Dawn, he said, uh, we use these as well. I thought you might want to use this. So this is, well, let me play it. It's a ram's horn, a shofar, whatever you want to call it. But this was used on that. And he was like, and I was like, and he's like, you can have that too. And I was like, are you, these are like artifacts. That I feel like I stole from a museum or something, right? To have these and be able to use them. So we used them on Dawn. How did we, you, so how did you work them into the score? Uh, well, on War of the Planet of the Apes, this one is used in a, this, this horn is used in a very, very specific spot. I played it, I recorded a bunch of different versions of it. And then uh, there's a scene where Rocket is in the prison and it's after they, you know, uh, they're throwing, what do you call it? Mud. mud, throwing mud <laughs> at the guard who's there. And the guard turns around and he's like, wipes the mud off of his face. And he turns around and Rocket is standing there and he's, he has this handful of mud, wow. mud right? And, and it's this great showdown moment between the two. And only you know, because of the way you pace these things, it allows for stuff like this to come about, to be created. And so there's this moment, as soon as we settle on, on Rocket, you hear this horn and it's like this crazy moment where you're like, oh God, stuff's going down right now. Something, <laughs> something's gonna happen. And, uh, so we and that's used, Michael playing it. And that's me playing yeah. it, yeah, on the thing as well. So we did that. And then we also, then Emil this year brought me this. This is something new. And he goes, I thought I'd bring you something new for this year. And he brought this, you know, what looks like a, it's a cardboard tube, you know, about six inches, eight inches long. It's almost like a, uh... Like, like a poster tube, yeah. in a way. And it has a long spring hanging from it. And he goes, he goes, here you go, we should put this somewhere. So it has that this is amazing. really great resonant. Now you add some reverb to that. You record, you know, you're on the stage at Fox recording these scores, so you have a great big room you to hear sure. it, in, and it just sounds otherworldly. You're like, what is that? And there's all these different sizes of these things too. Mm. So you have giant ones and they have smaller ones, and so it gives wow. you all these different, you know, uh, variations on a theme. But uh, but it just adds such a great, crazy thing. And we would put them in moments like when a, there was some slow motion stuff out in the beginning. I remember when. Um, the uh, the donkey ape is is sort of like turning around watching, and, yeah. help and watching and they're going up the hill they're, that whole area and as he's slowly turning around it's there and it's just like in different moments in the film but it just adds this you know 
a lot of times you accomplish these sort of effects with synthesizers. Sure. But you don't realize how much you can do with just with a real thing. real things, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, that's the fun part, I think, is just finding something in the world you can go and use. Yeah. So that's yeah, amazing. That's, that's this crazy <laughs> stuff. That is you awesome. Know? Well, you you played on the score for Don. Oh yes, I did. Yeah. I took a uh, I took a super ball That's on right. a stick and rubbed it against a gong, gong, and it made a. Oh, they, oh, it was the most fun. Yeah, it was incredible. We were playing together. Yeah, we're playing. I was like, here we are, the first day on. It was the first day yeah. of recording. And we were, and were like, just... come on, let's go. And, I was like, <laughs> and, and literally, and the, and the percussionists are going, it's all right. Look at these guys, these clowns coming here. And we're like, it was incredible. I think I was playing the bass drum or something, and oh, we were doing. So but fun. it's so weird because you also feel like it's fun. But you're also like, oh God, there's a hundred other people in the room <laughs> who are counting on, on us two idiots not to mess it up, you know? And, and so you have to count, you have to make sure you remember where where, where to come in. I just followed you. I didn't count. I watched you. Yeah. And then you did it. And you were like this. Like, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have fun too. It was really fun. Yeah. Those are really uh, distinctive sounds in the film, too. Oh, yeah. They really yeah. stand we use them a lot. out in the score. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, they really, we, we use them and then we had them recorded and we would use them. In the uh, in the temp sort of soundtrack for War, as a um, as a kind of mood setter when it came to represent a, a kind of rage yeah. between the apes. So like when when Caesar got angry, when Koba was standing up to him and saying "Human work." Oh, there's another and there's thing. A, like, no, when that Caesar is stands, different. Yeah, that's different a different thing. thing. That's a, that's the you know the timpanies, right? The, the, the giant kettle right. That's drums. what I meant. Those kettle so drums. they're tunable. We have those saved you know? up. Yeah. yeah, and they're tunable, so you yeah. can. You, kind did of you tune. rub those too? So you you take a super ball and you rub it and then you detune it. So it's like this. And it would sound like the earth opening up almost. Like it was like crazy. elemental. Yeah. yeah. And but by the way, this is kind of a like the Kurosawa films do some of that technique too. Yeah. Like some yeah. sort of had that kind of like Asian like samurai. It's so like fun. really cool. Yeah. So and there's all kinds of metal work in there, all kinds of different things that we used. And we used a giant the, the Mahler sticks, which are basically yes. you know miniature telephone poles that, that are so hard to hold because <laughs> they're I think they're ten feet tall or something. And you you have to have a guy who's like can grab hold of both of them, lift them up, and slam them These on the percussionists ground. Percussionists are pretty <laughs> yeah. big, and it's amazing. So and he stands on this big wooden platform, and he's eighty four years and old. He, <laughs> and, well, no, he's not eighty four years old who does that. He he was much younger and more fit. So you stand on this thing and you can see him he's like getting ready because his you know he's counting the bars when do i come in when do I? and he comes in you see him and you see him take this breath and go <laughs> you know and then he does it <laughs> and then by the done he's just by the time he's done he's just like <laughs> I'm just going to put these down. And he has to put them down very quietly. And they're massive, you know, because we're still recording. It's crazy. And that's his exercise for the day. That's his exercise for the day. Yep. So, but they love it. Matt, when you're making a movie other than Cloverfield, which doesn't have the rule of no music, you have these you have these two obviously very powerful sound tools in your arsenal. You've, mm -hmm. got, you've got music, score, and source. And then you've got sound design. So how do you, when you're, when you're crafting the film and thinking about it, how do you decide... Which tool you're going to use in any? You know, it evolves. Or do you think about it that way? Well, I think about um, what it feels like, and to me, uh, everything is driven by how it feels. And so, it's a. I think that sound design can be very musical. So in a way, you know, especially the work that these guys do, there's a kind of um, 
there's a kind of relationship between the two where they can flow out of each other, they can complement each other, you can do one instead of the other, and it's all about what's right for the particular moment. There's sometimes when, like there's a very mesmerizing moment, I think, to me, just sound design-wise, in war where, you know, the music has been really strong in terms of introducing these themes and what Caesar's going through and knowing that he's going through this heartbreak. And then they find this young girl in this cabin and the music just stops. And you're hearing the ocean and it's very hypnotic and you get lulled into, you're going, oh, we're in another place now. Everything has just stopped. And then you start hearing the sounds of the orangutan and the sound of a young girl who can't speak. And it's it's this idea, you know, that it's, it's like Michael said, like there are times when it'll make the music more important when you can take it out for a long period of time. So when it comes back, yeah. it makes a definitive statement. But there's also times when you take it out and you do things with the sound that really heighten the experience of what you're seeing and it creates an environment and it feels really, I find that that kind of stuff can be really exciting. But we would do lots of stuff where there were places where, um, especially when things would get emotional, sometimes you might lean into a moment that would normally be very percussive because it's a battle moment. And we did this actually in, in both Apes movies where at the moment where you would think the sound effects would be the loudest, we pulled all of the sound effects out and there was some very intimate music happening and this happened. And then Michael actually, we did that and discovered it in uh, the battle scene in Dawn. And then Michael came up with the idea to do that based on his score. Because if, if we had put the music that he meant to have there, I, we wouldn't have been able to use any sound effects because it was so quiet, but it was very emotional. And we were like, oh, that's a wonderful idea to transition into what's going on here. So so it, what does that do for the audience? Well, I think it, um, it, it brings them it gives, it's about perspectives. You know, yeah. it, it, what it does is it, it gives them the unexpected in a way that ties. I mean, to me, the whole idea of movie and, and movie making and cinema is to be um, is to be subjective and immersive. The idea is empath empathy. You're putting people into the emotion of what's going on, and you can do that in many different ways. And sometimes it's about pull every, pulling everything back yeah. and just relying on a theme well, that connects to you. And it's other also times it's about- Because even though there's fighting and all of this stuff going on, that may not be the point yeah, of what's, the scene. What is, yeah, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. What is That's the exactly point right. of the scene? What, are we, what do I want to feel here? And there could be like this crazy thing happening in front of me, but if I'm feeling like sadness while watching this, then I'm like, okay, well, that was how we found it in Dawn, is that the, the battle scene was really a tragedy. And we kept playing it um, for the reality of what it was, but that ended up, because it was, it was in a way too objective. And when it was that objective, the meaning of it wasn't clear. But once you realize, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're now taking in, in that shot on the tank, this, this turn, which is actually quite tragic, which is there's been an unprovoked attack, the peace is over, and these two species will not be able to live side by side. There's nothing is gonna take us back from the brink now. And so that started peeling all those sounds away, and then it, it, actually, it actually made the scene work. You didn't know what the scene was about until finally we arrived at this thing, which was bit by bit taking sounds away and then finally ending just on this very sort of emotional, tragic score. And so sometimes it's experimentation and sometimes you just know it. I mean, there are sometimes when, there'll be times when I literally write, you know, sound into the script. I mean, we've worked together four times. I, I, I love, I, I try to think in terms of the way it'll feel to watch it. To me, the best way to create empathy for an audience is to try and be an audience. And I have to start being an audience from the writing 
I start going, this is what, it, you're going to sit there and watch a movie. It's going to be a black screen. There's going to be some sound. What's that sound? It's going to make you lean in. Where are we? And so, but it's all a process of, of experimentation. You try some stuff yeah. and, oh, wait, that really made me feel something. That yeah. didn't. And mm-hmm. So that's what's so fun about working with I mean, guys. sometimes we overdo it. Like, yeah. There were times like we would have, we'd be sitting in my studio and we'd be like having so much fun and we'd be like, wait, make it louder. Let's make it, oh my God, let's add all the instruments in and let's do it. And we'd listen back, go, oh, it's so good. We're so happy. We hug each other. We're so happy. And then we get on the stage and we're like, wait, do you hear this? And then we play it and we're both like, oh my God, it's let's so wrong. <laughs> Never mind, everyone, turn around. Forget you heard that. We're going, like, give me a minute to fix this. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Sound you, yeah. You you know real quickly when you've gone over the line, as opposed to you know real quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. So talk me through the process. So you're at what point do you involve these guys? Are, 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 Very early. You know, on Let Me In, uh, I went up to Skywalker. You actually and, came. You, you fell. You fell in love with Skywalker so much. I remember that you came up to write. I wrote uh, a, a a big part of the script uh, at Skywalker and. My whole fantasy was this idea of coming up there and being in a soundscape. And I wrote to um, this Arvo Part music uh, from the album Alina. And you guys created a uh, a mix that was winds and Arvo Part together on an endless loop. And then, and then and set that's me, what you wrote to? Yeah, and set me up in a room, and it was incredibly sad. It was Ben Burt's uh, office. Yeah, ben and, I, just, office. and right. I sat in there, and I listened to it, and, and I, I, um, there are times when I will say, hey, can you, can you just, everything's about putting you in a state, right? And I'll say, could you give me like a drone or a thing? And it, it does start pretty early, you know? And sometimes it starts as early as the writing, but other times it's just like, you know, when we're shooting, these guys will come around and record stuff so that there's stuff from the location that might be able to be used in some kind of evocative way. I mean, it's just always about collecting sounds. And um, and we start doing stuff, uh, you know, right, really in the editing in the very early, the very beginning, because I find that sometimes, that, that especially because of the style that I use in certain scenes, that protracted um, sort of suspense or that sense of crawling dread, something has to go there. Right. And so a lot of times that will provoke the beginning of what will become the sound design or then lead to something that is eventually replaced with music or whatever it is. So I think it begins pretty early. Yeah. Usually as soon as, as you get back from shooting. Yeah. 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 Or, or during shooting. Or sometimes. during shooting. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And are, are you guys, um, Will and Doug, are you in, in, in communication with Michael throughout the process or is it... Is it? Are you I mean, hearing? Whenever point, there's an issue, we, if we have a question, we absolutely will call each other. Sure. There's no issue. You know, you know we no talk to the, the the music editor a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's there too with us. Yeah, Paul's great. Paul comes and you know, Paul Paul comes armed with every score that Michael has ever written. Paul and I've worked together a long time, so he knows. What I like, what I don't like, what what you know. So when you're going into temp of film, the the thing that you know most of the time, I won't even listen to temp music because I don't want it to influence kind of what I whatever ideas or feelings I come up with just by watching the film. Um, but the nice thing about Paul working with Matt is that Paul will set a a template for what will roughly be what Michael may or may a not mood, do. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And at least then when I and get it, and he's been doing. I mean, since since we did Let Me In, yeah. I've been working with him and and you, so that is three movies. And yeah. and um, because so much of what 
we have is not representable. I end up leaning on Paul in the beginning sure. to put in too much music to represent the 16,000 things that aren't there. So the first cut of a scene might be like a guy against blue screen and we only got the blue screen and it's supposed to be all of this stuff. So I'll be like, I really need some intensity here. So, and it has nothing to do with what will be in the final movie in that sense, but it does influence a shape. And then those things will start peeling back. And then, so there's, you know, as much as they say that I love to have as much of Michael's music as possible, there is so much more at the beginning of temp music that has to be removed so that by the when end- When Michael arrives, on he the starts scene, throwing stuff out. The, the music <laughs> starts getting so much better because there's suddenly room for yes. to hear the sound. And and in the early stages when working with Paul, Matt has to build a whole imaginary visual, you know, We're building it with image. Music. It's an it's emotional guide because you're showing totally this to people is. that have may or may not have any imagination as to where well, it will end up. Well, I have to show up, it to the know? studio so that we can get the approval to, to actually get to work on the hundreds of effects. Like these characters don't exist until you start turning them into the characters that the actors played into apes, right? right. So I have to represent that so that they can see that there's a movie that actually might work. And so they, that movie has to, to be represented even them. though yeah. we don't have it. Right. So it's like, okay, we are now creating a facsimile of a movie and here's an emotional map. And what's crazy is it works. Like it sits down, I remember the, we showed it for the first, we showed Dawn for the first time and I remember Emma Watts turning around and crying and going, oh my God. <laughs> it's really great. She was really moved, but it That's was like so a great. very crude. That was what that was the first version yeah. you saw as well. Yep. I remember you saying like, "Oh, I'm really excited about this," and I was mm -hmm. like, "Really?" Because I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, guys. Um, War for the Planet of the Apes is a really stunning achievement, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to to do our show today. Thank you. Um, thank you to Matt and Michael and Will and Douglas. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Glenn. Thank you. This is Glenn Kaiser signing off from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection podcast. Thanks. <laughs>